Please stand as you're able for the reading of the gospel. From Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 through 46, I invite you to listen now for the word of God. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? He said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them this question. What do you think of the Messiah? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David by the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David thus calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one was able to give him an answer, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. For those of us who have been reading the devotional book, uh, Practicing Extravagant Generosity, it has become clear that the author of the book makes a strong connection between our love of God and our generosity, not only of money, but of spirit. To love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength is to have the whole of our lives oriented in the direction of God's love. It is to recognize that all we have, all we are, all we ever will be is because of God's love. And that recognition alone should be more than enough to cause us to open our hands and hearts in generosity. This, I think, this generosity is the key to the inseparability between the commandment to love God and the commandment to love our neighbor. The second commandment, you notice Jesus says, is like the first. The second commandment is like the first. It gives it focus and pinpoints the way in which the love of God can find practical expression. You remember the words of 1 John? Those who do not love a brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. A failure to honor the second commandment while claiming to observe the first makes the claim to honor the first ring hollow. We need desperately in our nation to have a conversation about this shared heritage that recognizes the deep need for love and concern for our neighbors, no matter who they are. 
It was so gratifying to me to see that concern on display in Shelbyville and Murfreesboro yesterday as the citizens of those towns gave a positive witness for love and spoke out against hatred. We can only pray that those might be the beginning of conversations that help bridge the gaps that divide us so obviously in this nation as we affirm the heart of the law which should bring us all together. Love God with all you have and love your neighbor as you love yourself. Which commandment in the law is the greatest, Jesus is asked. It's an important question. Important enough that it occurs in some form in Matthew, Mark, and in Luke. Each of them, though, frame it differently. In Luke, the question comes from someone with a sincere heart. But here, the question comes from someone with a malicious intent. It is presented as a test. It's meant to trap Jesus into elevating one law above many others, which would immediately embroil him in an age-old debate that has no winners. The reason the debate had no winners was at least in part due to the sheer number of laws there were. Moses came down the mountain with ten commandments, you remember. By the time of Jesus, that number had expanded to 613. 613 individual laws. And depending upon your place in Jewish life at that time, whether you were a Pharisee or a Sadducee, a revolutionary zealot, or one of the many other groups in Judaism at that time, you had your own list of important commandments. For Jesus to insert himself into that conversation invites his own rejection by anyone of a number of these groups. Yet even so, it's an important question. Important enough that Jesus takes the risk of providing an answer. He seems to understand that something is at stake in how we respond to this question. Something fundamental to how we live, how we give of ourselves our posture in the world, the kind of people we will become. We can get into situations where it would be helpful to know a quick summation of what is most important. And sometimes those situations are more serious than others. Several years ago, my friend John, who many of you know, uh, found himself in an ethical quandary and he shared it with our preaching group. He had forgotten his Panera Rewards card. And uh, the cashier offered to key in his phone number. It was enough years ago that he still had a home phone. And he gladly accepted, and he called out the home phone number. But since it was the home phone, it not only pulled up his reward status, but also his wife Elaine's. And that's when he got the news. You have nothing. No rewards, but your wife has a free pastry. And he he said the internal struggle began. Should he leave her reward alone, 
or since these things do expire eventually, should he avoid the potential loss of a hard-earned reward, albeit the hard work having been done by someone other than him. And he began to go through all the possible implications of what his choice would ultimately mean. And that's when he reached back 500 years ago to heed the advice of the father of the Reformation, Martin Luther, who famously said, if you're going to sin, sin boldly. (laughs) And that did not work out well for him. But in reflecting with us on that story, in light of this text, John said, life is filled with those sorts of moments, some of them much more serious than the one I told you about. Filled with these kinds of moments. Moments that are made difficult because we are seeking to be faithful to God in the midst of living. I think that may be what was driving the question Jesus had to answer. Which commandment is the greatest? In other words, life presents us with so many variables and options and choices that we need someone to distill for us what we absolutely must do above all else. And Jesus goes back deep into Jewish tradition and joins together Deuteronomy 6.5, the Shema. Love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. And he joins it together with Leviticus 19.18. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. And then he announces for all to hear down through the ages, on these two hang all the law and the prophets. The whole Bible hangs on these two. The law is summarized in love. But Jesus carefully reminds us that love for God is only one part of the law. Of equal value, it is like. Of equal value is love of neighbor. And Jesus spends his entire ministry helping his followers widen their notion of God's neighborhood. Their neighborhood includes Gentiles as well as Jews. Their neighborhood includes rich and poor alike at the same table. Their neighborhood includes women as well as men, slave as well as free, children alongside adults, sinners alongside the righteous. The spirit of the law is this love that knows no bounds. Nothing could have been more clear in Jesus' ministry than that. And it is that love of God which inspires all acts of human love. Jesus silences the Pharisees because I believe in the end they know he is correct. Love is the thing that lies beneath all the law. And any attempt, any attempt to enforce an interpretation of God's law that fails the law of love is in the end false or incomplete. Martin Luther, 
and John Calvin and John Knox and all of the others around them 500 years ago dared to tell the reigning religious institution of their day that they were failing in the law of love. And they lifted high the central theme of the scripture, the grace of God, the love of God, which we cannot earn, which we cannot lose, and which makes possible all our living and all our loving. So powerful were these recoveries of the tradition that not only did the Protestants find themselves reforming, but the Roman Catholic Church itself followed with its own counter-reformation along many of these same lines. It seems altogether appropriate that the Sunday we celebrate the Reformation almost always falls during a season when we are thinking about thanksgiving, we're praying about generosity, and we're praying about the ministry plans for our church in the coming year. Because as most of you know, one of the biggest motivators of the Protestant Reformation was this very question of giving. Martin Luther observed that the Roman Catholic Church of his day had abused the generosity of the people and had turned giving into a kind of transaction between the giver and God. Luther and John Calvin after him said that giving should not be a quid pro quo. It should not be to earn God's grace or assure your place or the place of your relatives in heaven, but rather was a concrete response to the grace of God freely given. The reformers did teach what we encourage today, that followers of Jesus Christ give a tithe or give a proportional amount of what they earn. But they saw it not as a transaction. They saw it as a spiritual discipline. It was a concrete way of showing love for God and a response to God's love and love for neighbor in supporting ministries that bring life and wholeness and good news to all. And beyond that, It was a practice that helped followers of Christ keep their possessions in proper perspective, in recognition that God cares not just about what we do with 10% of our money, God cares what we do with all of our money. Our earning, our saving, our spending, our giving matters to God and makes a difference in lives and in many cases makes a difference in the kind of people we are. One of the most moving and challenging parts of the devotion book we're reading together as a congregation is the author's repeated reminders that generosity is an aspect of character. He writes, It's an attractive quality which I aspire to and I desire to see cultivated in my children. No stories from Scripture tell of people living the God-related life while fostering a greedy attitude. Generosity extends beyond merely the use of money, although it most definitely includes that. There are generous spirits, generous souls, people who are generous with their time, 
with their teaching, with their love. Generosity is a fruit of the Spirit. And we know generosity when we see it. This rings so true to me as a pastor in this congregation. Since 1811, generation after generation, in the spirit of the Reformation itself, have been so generous in so many different kinds of ways that we stand here 206 years later, the beneficiaries of their response to God's grace. And speaking more personally, both of my children lived the bulk of their lives of faith, being nurtured by and witnessing the generosity of this congregation. I cannot begin to tell you how gratifying it was as a father to see my son stand up after his wedding and give thanks for this community of faith with such joy and authenticity. I can see in the kind of father he is, the kind of husband he is, I can see it in the kind of human being he and my daughter are. I see you, your care, your generosity, your love. I see in their generosity the influence and impact of yours. Words fail, really, to say how thankful I am that they were able to witness and be nurtured by that kind of spirit in this place. And so the Reformation continues in our time. Future generations that we do not even know will know the impact of our witness, our giving, our generosity, all to the glory of God. It really does all boil down to those simple words that take a lifetime to live, love God, and love your neighbor. As we go out into a world longing for authentic love, may this be our guiding light. Amen.